Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hemingway. Eichmann. Ugh, yuck, man. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that explores post-war history and the reason why the world is like it is today, all done through the lyrics of a number one smash hit from the legend that is Billy Joel. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, are we ready for the next part of our adventure? We are, and it's a very deep and dark adventure. Today we are discussing the life and times of the architect of the Holocaust, the final solution, Adolf Eichmann, who in 1960 was captured by Mossad operatives in Argentina and taken to Israel to be tried for crimes against humanity and war crimes. And to talk to us today about all of this is Stephen Luckert, who is the senior program curator in the Levine Institute for Holocaust Education at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. Stephen has spent 20 years as the curator of the museum's acclaimed permanent exhibition, The Holocaust, and he's published on German history, the Holocaust, and Nazi propaganda. Welcome, Steve. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Steve, this is an extraordinary story. Before we fully excavate the grimness of Adolf Eichmann's history and his actions, can you just quickly give us an overview of who Eichmann was and why this was such a sensation when he was captured in Argentina? Well, Adolf Eichmann was born in Germany uh, about 1906, and he joined the Nazi party in Austria, as well as the SS in 1932. And he quickly rose through the ranks and eventually became the expert on Jewish issues within the Reich uh, Security Service. And he was responsible for first working for the mass forced emigration of Jews from Austria, then Germany, and elsewhere. Then he became involved in various types of plans to solve the so-called Jewish question, and ultimately he was involved in planning the deportations of Jews to killing centers uh, in Europe and the mass murder of millions. And why was it such a big hoo-ha when he was captured? Because he wasn't captured right after the war. It was some years later, right? Yes, it was a number of years later. In fact, uh, he was captured by American troops after the war, but he was using a a false name. But he eventually made his way to Argentina in 1950, and it was only 10 years after that that he was captured by the Mossad and brought to, to Israel. And this was something that just the event, the drama behind this, and the capture of this man who was already known after the Nuremberg trials for his role in what came to be known as the Holocaust. The the first question I have, Stephen, and from from all my reading about Eichmann, 
your skin crawls for the majority of it. It's one of the most horrendous human beings you will ever read about. And I find myself wondering how he became like that, what it was about his childhood or the situation in Germany as he was growing up that could turn someone into the monster that he became. Well, you raise a very important question and one that's difficult to answer in many ways because, you know, here's somebody who, you know, really hadn't been much of a success in his life. You know, he he didn't do very well in school. He tried to, you know, work for his father in Austria. That didn't pan out well. And he gravitated towards far-right politics and joined the, uh, the Nazi party. The year before the Nazi party came to power in Germany, he joined. So his, his politics were already there with this far-right anti-Semitic group. And he joined the SS. And and the SS was kind of this elite, started out as a bodyguard for Adolf Hitler, but in the 1930s greatly expanded, and Eichmann was part of that. And, and he took this growing interest in the Jewish question. What's kind of remarkable is that he showed great organizational skills in carrying this out. This is a guy that was had never done particularly well before, but he showed a, an aptitude for brutalizing populations, for organizing mass murder. I'm wondering what animated Eichmann's anti-Semitic beliefs. I mean, was it something that he picked up in his family, or it was just kind of the popular position to take at that time? Well, it's, it's hard to—there isn't all that much about his early life. We know something about his early life, but not not enough to say, you know, did it come from his upbringing. Certainly gravitating towards the circles that he was, these kind of far-right, you know, Nazi circles in the 1930s. Remember, he's still fairly young. Political theorist Hannah Arendt, in her book Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil, did characterize him as a joiner, someone who perhaps doesn't have that much of, uh, you know, gumption and grit within himself, but is really happy to join something that's already in progress. Yeah, I mean, certainly there were there were many people. You have to realize that, you know, and sometimes we forget about this, but how quickly the Nazi party rose, for instance, in Germany. I mean, in 1928, for instance, the Nazi party had 12 seats in the, the German parliament, the Reichstag, out of about 500. 1930, they get 107 seats. 1932, 230. So this is a meteoric rise, and millions of people switch their allegiances from centrist parties to the Nazi party. And the Nazis were successfully able to market themselves as an alternative. And there were people that overlooked, for instance, the, the rabid anti-Semitism and looked to the, you know, Hitler's appeals to creating a, a Germany that would unite all the people regardless of what region they came from, what class they belonged to, and what religion, as long as they were not Jews. Jews were excluded. They were deemed to be a, a, a foreign race. And so Eichmann was one of those that was drawn to that. But he went much further in the sense that he joined the most ideological Nazi part of that movement, that is the, the SS. Okay, so, so that's why 
the Nazi party makes sense for Eichmann. What is it about Eichmann that sees him progress so quickly through the Nazi party ranks? It's through this kind of, through the SS and through the uh, the Reich Security Service that he rises up. He first is given, you know, tasks. Uh, one of his tasks was dealing with Freemasonry. So he got involved in kind of ideological enemies of the Reich. And then he moved into dealing with the Jewish question. And one of the things that I think he realizes is the kind of personal power that he has. And this is something that he, I think, thrives on. It gives him a sense of personal empowerment, but also, you know, I think he feels that this is, you know, an accomplishment. What sort of situations were the Jewish population in Germany put through in the 1930s as the Nazi party tightens its grip on the country? What sorts of deprivations were being forced upon the German Jews? Well... When you look at the the Nazi party, the core of its ideology, uh, one of the key elements of it is anti-Semitism, a racial anti-Semitism. When Adolf Hitler came into power, he immediately began to implement many of his measures. And we, we forget how quickly this happened. But, you know, he's appointed January 30th, 1933. And within six months, Germany goes from being a republic with over 30 political parties to being a one-party state. Less than six months. And then, you know, he immediately begins implementing measures so that in that first hundred days you have the civil rights taken away from all Germans, and that remains until 19, uh, 1945. You have the first concentration camp set up. You have the first anti-Jewish legislation put forward, all within the first hundred days of the Nazis taking over. And what they did is that they tried to, first of all, identify Jews, Jewish businesses. And the goal was, at least in Germany up until the fall of 1941, was to force Jews to leave. That was the goal that all these laws to disenfranchise Jews, to take, to drive them from the economy, was to push them out. And Eichmann played an important role in that. And he showed skills that in, in doing this that, uh, that won him the praise of colleagues in the SS, that he was so successful in doing that, particularly, you know, in 1938, after the incorporation of Austria into the German Reich. I'm interested in the fact that before they hit on the final solution strategy, the idea of simply exterminating their enemies, the first idea was to set up Jewish ghettos, and then reservations for Jews abroad, including one in Madagascar, which, uh, to my ignorant mind, sounds like a charming idea, like having a holiday on a desert island somewhere. But that's not how it was actually devised, was it, Steve? No, no. I think that with the, with the coming of war, one of the things that the Nazis discussed, particularly within the SS, is to come up with a solution to this Jewish question. For, if forced emigration, forcing Jews out, you know, ran into difficulties, then you create these reservations. So they, Eichmann worked on one, you know, uh, the so-called Nisko, 
reservation uh, uh, near Lublin. That also kind of failed. But this kind of search for plans, the Madagascar plan was one of those. That is this island off of, of Africa. It had been talked about actually years before, both by the Polish government and there was even a expedition that was taken there to see if, in fact, people could be settled there. And that was something that the Nazis considered, that they could deport Jews there, of course, under brutal conditions. That is, this was not supposed to be, you know, uh, a tropical paradise. This was supposed to be a place where Jews would be put to work, and many of them would die as a result of that. But it was the idea of cleansing Germany and its occupied territories of all Jews. And that was something that, that Eichmann uh, had discussed and, and worked on. So he was very much involved in these kind of discussions about plans, how to settle, the, how to solve this so-called Jewish question. And when did the policy change from forced emigration to genocide? Well, that really, it's about 1941. One of the things that occurs is that when you have the outbreak of the Second World War, which Nazi Germany initiated, it cuts off the possibilities for Jews to emigrate. As Nazi power grows, they incorporate more and more Jews under their control. So they embarked in 1941 upon mass murder. Who were the architects of this final plan, Stephen? Which members of the Nazi hierarchy? Well, of course, Adolf Hitler you'd have to put in at the very top. But people like Heinrich Himmler, who was the Reichsführer SS, you know, Reinhard Heydrich, also member of the SS, and one of Eichmann's superiors. And Eichmann played a role in this too. The The first mass killings occurred through shootings. After the invasion of the Soviet Union in June of of 1941, the SS troops there carried out mass shootings of Jews. And in a a period of, you know, little more than six months, they'd killed about a million Jews. If you think about places like Babi Yar outside of Kiev in, in Ukraine, in two days, they murdered over 33,000. But this was something that was carried out repeatedly in villages and towns and cities throughout the occupied East. Then, of course, this moved into the idea of having this occur on a continental scale. And so Eichmann played a role in that. January of 1942, you have this, the so-called Wannsee Conference to discuss the implementation of this horrific plan. So before the Wannsee Conference, it was a little bit ad hoc, this repulsive orgy of murder. And then I guess those in charge, and including Eichmann, decide we need to make this a more efficient system. Presumably he was instrumental in streamlining this murder, what were his responsibilities and actions from this time going forward? Well, one of the things that he did is he, he played a role both in the organization of the, that particular conference, but it's also dealing uh, with the deportations of, of Jews from Germany 
First initially in, in 1941 to the eastern killing zones in the Soviet Union, then with deportations to ghettos, and eventually deportations to killing centers. That is, they created these special camps where Jews were to be eradicated on a mass scale, so that Jews from all over. And so this required a lot of a lot of coordination be between various German agencies. So Eichmann showed his his skills as an organizer in uh, carrying out this mass murder. And how quickly did it take place, Stephen, once it had begun? Well, it actually it occurs quite rapidly. So you have the, the Wannsee Conference. You've already started one killing center in operation, uh, Helmno, at the end of December of 1941. And then you had several camps, the so-called Operation Reinhardt camps, that opened in 1942 that were just for mass murder in gas chambers. And so you had transports that were from Poland, from the Netherlands, and various others. And, of course, you had the creation of Auschwitz-Birkenau, Auschwitz, which started out as a, a concentration camp, rapidly expanded to uh, the greatest mass uh, graveyard in, in Europe. And Eichmann was involved in having those deportations from throughout Europe to go to Auschwitz and other places. Was there ever a sense that the people who were being funneled to their doom, that they could also maybe be used as a workforce, a slave workforce? Because I know that people were just shoved into these trains with no food or water, and it didn't seem to matter if they didn't make the trip. Well, they did exploit labor in a huge way. But for the vast majority of Jews that were deported to these killing centers, they weren't registered for forced labor. Uh, the concentration camp system greatly expanded during the war to use forced labor, many of them non-Jews, in various types of projects for armaments, manufacturing, construction of fortifications. And Jews were, were used for this as well, but in, in relatively smaller numbers. So you have labor being exploited. And, and if you think about, for instance, the size of the, the concentration camp population and, and the beginning of 1945, it's about 700,000 people that are registered and those are those are for mostly for forced labor and so the the nazis d exploited labor to a great deal but for the vast majority of jews it meant death in auschwitz for instance you had this selection process that divided up those jews that were seen that could work you know that could be selected for forced labor and those that couldn't so that elderly jews young children pregnant women were immediately sent to the gas chambers to be murdered. The terrible scale of the death, Stephen, suggests words like indiscriminate, but I think almost what's most frightening is that it wasn't indiscriminate, that the level of organisation that went into these executions, even when Germany invades Hungary quite late in that war, in March 1944, by July... Almost half a million Hungarian Jews have been sent to their deaths. Yeah, and this is something that, you know, when you think about Germany's clearly losing the war, 
But when they move into Hungary, it's people like Eichmann who are so dedicated to this cause that they want to eradicate this large population of Jews even as they know they're going to lose the war. This is their goal. This is the mindset to, to carry out mass murder. Eichmann you know, goes to Hungary. He negotiates with, with Jewish leaders, organizes these mass deportations. And Steve, I'm interested in this detail you just mentioned that he negotiates, Eichmann negotiates with Jewish leaders. What, what form does that discussion take? I mean, why wouldn't the leaders be going, go away, you horrible person? Well, this is something that Eichmann had begun doing in the 1930s. Maybe negotiation isn't the right word because it's not negotiating between people of equal power. That is, Eichmann knew he he was in the driver's seat, so he could bully them into doing that, into pressuring them, for instance, in forced emigration, to get them to pressure the Jewish community to sign up to leave. You know, and of course, what you have to remember is that they're not saying to Jews, you're going to be sent to your deaths. It's all about forced labor, or you're going to be deported to the East. Right. And of course, it's important to say that Jews weren't the only people who were targeted. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you you look at the, you know, the number of victims of the Nazi regime, and that includes everyone from, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses to men who engage in same-sex relationships, political opponents, Soviet prisoners of war, Polish civilians, persons with disabilities, you know, Roman Sinti. Within the Nazi universe, these were all groups that constituted potential threats to the the Nazi regime. As the war in Europe comes towards its conclusion, Stephen, and Stalin's armies are advancing from the east and the Allies are advancing from the west, you get a sense of chaos for the area in the middle. And is that why, initially, Eichmann is able to escape? Well, I think that in some cases, some of these officials are already kind of planning their their escape, that they know the end is near. Eichmann is one of those people that he knew all about these routes that people could travel. He knew about false papers. He knew about, you know, the kind of ways in which he could plot his own escape. How does the process work then for all these Nazis who will find their way to South America and Argentina in particular? There seems like there is an established network to get former SS officers out of Germany, often involving safe houses in monasteries and members of the clergy who are sympathetic to the cause? Well, I think, you know, sometimes it's called the rat line, you know, where these former Nazi leaders are able to find passage through various countries and particularly get to to Italy and then through South America. And all along the way, they're, they're provided with false papers, places to stay. The Allies, of course, have been putting together lists of alleged war criminals who were to be subject to arrest. And, of course, that that was a, a very difficult task because you think about all the German POWs 
that they had to search through and comb through to identify, you know, is this a, this person a member of the SS? Is this person on, the, on this list of, of war criminals? Uh, many of these perpetrators have assumed identities or, or have gone underground. And so it's a, it's, it becomes a question of rooting these people out, finding out who, where they are. And, of course, they have a, you know, this network of people that, that help hide them. It seems like Argentina is the ideal retirement plan for any self-respecting ex-Nazi. Once he ended up in Buenos Aires, did he socialize or fraternize at all with his uh, former contingent, or were they all just keeping a distance from each other? Well, I think with with Eichmann, he can, he met with a number of you know former. SS and, you know, Nazi leaders that had fled there. There was an established German community there, but then there was this influx of Nazis that came from Europe, all using fake identities, all, you know, having fake uh, documents that will allow them to come into uh, Argentina. And, of course, you had the kind of acquiescence of the Argentinian authorities to letting them in. Eichmann, when you think about it, he was able to survive underground in Germany for five years after the war and only made it to Argentina in 1950. And, of course, he, he, he left his wife and children behind. I'm interested in how wily he was. So, you know, this is someone who was not a great student in high school and kind of flubbed out of his vocational education and wasn't a great employee in his dad's business. Um, And then, of course, found his métier of destroying and annihilating human beings. But I'm wondering if there are accounts of what kind of employee he was in the Forestry Commission or when he was a chicken farmer or as he ended up in Buenos Aires, a department head in the Mercedes-Benz factory. Do we know anything about that? Well, I mean, we know that he, you know, he moved from job to job, and you know, most of these jobs that he had in in Argentina were things that didn't, you know, pay a lot of money. And he wasn't uh, one of the things that some have noted about Eichmann is that unlike other Nazi leaders, he didn't abscond with a lot of money. So he took these jobs, you know, and. I'm not sure how successful he was in a lot of these ventures, you know, as well. <laughs> he wasn't he wasn't implying himself to rise to the ranks of Mercedes-Benz necessarily. Who knew, Stephen? Who knew that Eichmann was in Argentina? I'm assuming that Juan Perón, who we've covered Katie in a previous episode, I'm assuming that Juan Perón knew the identity of some of the Germans who were coming, but did other nations know? Did the did the new government in West Germany know? Did the Americans know? Well, there was, you know, there's some indications, you know, about the ways in which Eichmann and others disguised their whereabouts. There were the, many of those who thought that he had gone to the to the Middle East. One of the things that people believed about Eichmann, including Jewish leaders and, and some of the initial accounts of him, was that he had been born in Palestine, you know, prior to the state of Israel, that he was born into this German colony and he spoke Hebrew and he spoke Yiddish. And so people said, oh, well, he would go, he would flee there to first to Cairo or other places in the, in the Middle East. And there were Nazis that fled there. But there were indications, for instance, in in the West German Secret Service that Eichmann was in 
someplace in Latin America, and one of these things was passed on to the CIA. Now, there were the, there's a big debate about how much the CIA knew, you know, were they trying to cover it up? Some recent things that were done by, for instance, Eli Rosenbaum, who headed the Office of Special Investigations that looked into hunting down Nazi war criminals in the United States, has argued that, you know, the information that they got was pretty minimal at best. You know, and so that in those records there isn't much that would have been useful. And other people, others were getting that information. We know that, for instance, Fritz Bauer, uh, a German Jewish prosecutor in Germany, had received information directly from a survivor who was in Argentina, whose daughter was going out with one of Eichmann's sons. And he reported, the, the father reported this information to Bauer, and Bauer sent this information onto the Mossad in Israel. And so that helps, you know, uncover Eichmann. But how incredible, Steve, that this uh, daughter of a Holocaust survivor is dating Eichmann's son. And the story goes that the son was bragging on his dad, like, hey, my dad was responsible for killing those nasty Jews. I mean, presumably not quite understanding the audience he was pitching to. Right, yeah. I mean, it's 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 kind of one of those extraordinary stories. And it's, it's interesting that Eichmann's wife and the children came over and used the, their last name. Yeah. His last son was born in, in Buenos Aires. So it's this is kind of this, you know, story about how Initially, they're told they're going to see an uncle. Right. Then Eichmann says, I'm your father. And, of course, Eichmann in those Argentinian days takes pride in what he does. There's that series of interviews he does with a, with a Dutch SS man. Well, this is extraordinary, Stephen, because yeah. this, this takes place in 1956 at a point where you would think he would still be laying, fearing laying low. laying low. But instead, yeah. he decides that he wants a biography written of his nefarious deeds and submits to four months of interviews putting on the record everything he has done. Yeah, it's it's a, it's kind of an amazing story and now that, you know, so many of these things are available including some of these tapes, you know, the transcripts, you know, as well as the information that came out of the trial, it's, it's quite yeah. remarkable and the kind of pride he takes in what he did. Remember, this is, yeah. from his perspective, this was the pinnacle of his his career, so to speak. And he took pride in, in what he did. He's careful in that he goes over a number of these transcripts and he corrects those. He says, no, I, I, this isn't how I want this to be presented. So he's clearly thinking in, in terms of how he wants to be presented. Yeah, his legacy. Exactly. And he does the same thing with his trial. And, of course, there's an attempt to kind of mislead. So, of course, before we get to the trial, let's talk about the capture, because this is total action adventure. So already the breadcrumbs are, are being laid out. We have the daughter of the Holocaust survivor who's dating the son, gets the word back to the prosecutor in Germany, who then gets the word out to the security forces in Israel. What happens next? They send groups of, of Mossad agents to kind of verify that it's him. And so in, in May of, of 1960, I think there are about 11 or so agents that are there. They, you know, abduct him 
and smuggle him out of Argentina. And that must have been Harry scary because it, he's not going to go willingly. So what, they had to presumably drug him? Yeah, and they, he was placed on a special El Al flight back to Israel. I understand that they disguised him as a drunken airline pilot. So he, yes, he was. And they, you know, when they captured him, of course, they, they put, you know, these taped up goggles over him and, and got him on board the plane and, and made it there. And then there was the announcement that the Israeli government made that they had captured Adolf Eichmann. And this is extrajudicial, though. I mean, can I just ask, this is, I'm sure, a dumb question, but why didn't they just say to the Argentinian government, you've got a bad guy there, we need to get him back and put him on trial. Why couldn't they just do that? Well, I don't think at that stage there was an extradition treaty between Israel and Argentina. And also there would have been a time lag while they negotiated the transport of Eichmann. And I, I think while it's possible that it could have been arranged, he also could have escaped. Remember, when Eichmann was captured, it put the fear in many of those other Nazis that were hiding oh, yeah. it out in Argentina. I think Mengele flees to Paraguay as a result of that because they're all worried that the Mossad are going to capture them. You know, they've been a bit a bit too free in, you know, in their behavior. And none of them want to be put on trial in Israel for their for their crimes. But this was this was a challenge from a from an international law perspective. You know, Argentina initially makes a representation to the United Nations saying this was a violation of their sovereignty in abducting him. You know, it's largely patched up with Israel. You know, Israel, you know, issues a sort of an apology for this. And, you know, it's kind of let go. And then he's brought to he's brought to face trial in Jerusalem. The interrogation that takes place before the trial is a pretty extraordinary thing in itself, Steve. So this goes on for a long time, so long that it provides a transcript which is 3,500 pages long. Did he think that he would get away with it? Like if he were crafty enough and um, kind of massaging the facts into a different shape, did he think that he was going to lessen the punishment? Well, I think in his his defense was aimed at that. That is to show that he was just that he was a cog in the wheel, that he was just following orders. Now this is you know, the the following orders defense had been tossed out in Nuremberg, you know, so that it was following superiorities wasn't a uh, uh, deemed to be a legal defense, but it was something that that Eichmann and other Nazis, you know, used as their defense. When you read about the trial, Steve, and you get a full understanding of what Eichmann did and what other Nazis did, you almost make the mistake, or I found that I've almost made the mistake of trying to rationalise it, but it's a situation that you cannot rationalise. Yeah, it's very, it's very difficult to understand how people could willingly take part in the mass murder of, of innocent individuals on such a grand scale. And you know, and and this is something that that scholars and philosophers and others have been trying to, you know, uh, to understand. You know, why do people do these horrific things? Was it the nature of of bureaucracy that made it easier for people that were just working at their desks? That like Eichmann would say, "I never killed anybody, I never tortured anybody." 
All he did was draw plans. Yeah, because it's not like blood is dripping from his fangs, but I would submit that it's even colder and, and more monstrous, that he's so bland and flat in his effect after all of the harm that he has caused. Yeah, his you know, you look at his delivery, you know, this the the trial was filmed for television and it was aimed at an at an international audience. Remember Israel didn't have TV until about 7 years after. Oh, that's incredible. So this this would have been uh designed, this would have been videoed to create maximum public impact worldwide. Yeah. And and in in many ways it succeeded in putting the the Holocaust on the kind of the front page to raise this this awareness of the horrors of the Holocaust. And I think, you know, the other interesting element about this was having about uh, 111 or so survivors speak at the trial. This was unusual. And these weren't necessarily people that knew Eichmann. These were people that suffered as a result of what Eichmann did. This was in many ways set an important precedent in the way modern war crimes trials, for instance, in Cambodia and elsewhere, are being uh, dealt with. That is to have the survivors of these horrific atrocities speak, to put a human voice on that. You know, in comparison to Eichmann, who is emotionless, and so I think this was in many ways quite important. And the Eichmann trial also was something that raised awareness, not only in Israel and in the United States, but in Germany itself. And you had a number of subsequent trials in Germany that really raised awareness of, of what happened during the Holocaust. Because this is important to remember that this is what, like 15 years after the end of World War too. And so I wonder if at the time Eichmann's trial was playing out, was there maybe a sense of uh, World War II exhaustion or Holocaust exhaustion, like fatigue about it? We, want, we don't want to keep hearing about it. So in a way, it was quite useful for people to be confronted with, yes, this really happened. And yes, the repercussions are still playing out. Yeah, I think in in many ways it was a bit of a shock. Uh, remember, the the things had changed a lot. You know, the many of the war crimes trials, for instance, in Germany had largely ended. You know, there were still efforts to locate them, but you know, the, the Cold War had already started. There was a new enemy there. Some of these former Nazis became, you know, uh, useful. To, yeah, uh, in the U.S., like, you know, helpfully helping the U.S. build bombs and develop their nuclear capabilities. Yeah, but I mean, in, not, in West Germany, too, many of them became, you know, got involved in, in various enterprises, built new lives, etc. And and there were, there were many that didn't want to talk about that. They wanted to push that behind. Germany was experiencing this economic miracle you know they wanted to to go on and to bring back the holocaust and this horse was for many people very difficult so when all of this evidence is being put before him and people affected by his actions are speaking emotionally and movingly i'm sure he was filled with remorse and demonstrated repentance right 
No, I don't think that wasn't, you know, that wasn't Adolf Eichmann. You know, he was he was trying to, at least in front of the court, absolve himself of responsibility. You know, and he did this in this very unemotional way. It's kind of it's quite frightening, actually. Yeah. To see his behavior on the stand. So he's found guilty of 15 counts of crimes against humanity at the end of December that year. He's sentenced to death by hanging, and after a brief appeal, he is hung and he is cremated. His ashes are scattered somewhere in the Mediterranean, Steve, I guess precisely so there can be no shrine, there can be no place for people to go and celebrate what he did if they wanted to do so. This actually was something that occurred even after the Nuremberg trials, because there there was that notion, and I think it's still very much alive. You don't want to create a site of pilgrimage to these people for neo-Nazis, that you don't want them to be used to resurrect a Fourth Reich. I think that you don't want them to become heroes. And I think that this is something that both the trials did, is that they exposed these people. What I was struck by, Steve, when I was preparing for our conversation was how compelled the prosecutors were, and people, in fact, historians in writing about Eichmann after the fact, how compelled they are to really establish, yes, he was instrumental in making the final solution a final solution. Like, I think it was kind of a seductive defense that he had that, oh, I was just following orders. I'm just a good little soldier. I'm a good little boy. Don't slap my wrist on this one. And I'm struck today by, like, yeah, it's completely clear how culpable he was. And yet people still feel compelled to point out every time that, yep, he signed this piece of paper. Yes, he advocated for this train to leave at a certain time. Yes, he said this uh, death camp should be built. It seems to me, and I'd be interested to hear what you think about it, it's almost like he's a new kind of villain. He's like the pencil and paper pushing monster. Well, I think this is this is a, an area that I think we're seeing a lot more research being done on. You know, whether it, to look at the varieties of collaboration and complicity that went on during the the Nazi period and the role that, you know, even individuals played. And I think that this is an important area. You know, when you go through these documents as, you know, as I have and we've got millions and millions of pages and you know you go through these ss documents and you see that eichmann has signed off on something that you know that it's a plan to forcibly remove jews and poles from areas that germany wants to incorporate into the reich and you see the consequences of it for him it's a you know he's drawing this plan up but it means thousands and thousands of people being uprooted from their homes, dumped into another place where they there's no provisions for them. And this in turn creates new problems. But it shows the kind of ways in which here's this guy, he's got a he's looking at it in terms of a problem that's gotta be solved. 
and he's working this out, and, and this is how it's going to happen, and this is how many people can be sent there. And and it raises that kind of role about, you know, here's a guy that's that's essentially sitting behind a desk coming up with these plans, and yet it has such horrific consequences for ordinary people. Stephen Luckett, thank you so much for telling us all about Adolf Eichmann, explaining what happened and explaining the magnitude of his crimes to us. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being with you today. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor, We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor, and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Katie, I knew that would be a sobering episode. Oh, so heavy, so heavy. What we've decided to do, Katie, with this topic, because it is a really big one in the period of history that we've chosen to cover, we're going to do a second part on this topic. So next week, we are going to be talking to a Holocaust survivor, and that's Ruth Barnett, who escaped Germany via the kinder transports in 1939. This is so fascinating because now we have under our belts all of the information about the very, very bad people who ruined millions of people's lives. And now we'll be talking to somebody who survived it. And and that's the thing that I find so incredible is that somehow humanity can prevail in the middle of all of this grimness. So I can't wait to hear her story. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic meeting Ruth. In the meantime, if you have any ideas for guests who you think might work similarly well on an episode of We Didn't Start the Fire, get in touch with us at fire at crowdnetworks.co.uk or you can get in touch with us on social media. We're at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. And Tom, after that episode, I need a hug. Come here, Katie. Crowd Network.
place where you belong. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.